Welcome, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True and creator and co-host of the Inner MBA program. It's my delight to share with you this exclusive Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO podcast series. The series is built from interviews that Soren Gordhammer, co-host of the Inner MBA, and I have conducted over the past three years. The series features over 40 transformational CEOs from around the world, running a diverse range of companies, all with a shared mission, that business be a force of collective good. These conversations are rich and meaningful, open and candid about personal failures, discoveries under pressure, and breakthroughs. They feature leaders who have faced enormous workplace challenges and have emerged as inspiring wisdom figures, bringing a depth of real-world insight to our work together in the Inner MBA. I've gleaned so many practical ideas from these conversations, and I trust you will too. Thanks in advance for listening, and please let us know about your experience with the Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO Podcast Series. Hello, everyone, Inner MBA friends, welcome. It's great to be with you again for this luminary interview. We have with us Shinedu Echero. And Shinedu is someone I've known now for about a year and a half. And I consider him a friend, a friend to me, a friend to Sounds True, and a friend of the Inner MBA. And I think you're really going to enjoy meeting him and learning from him. Let me just give you a little bit of background. He's originally from Nigeria and is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, and investor. He's someone who believes passionately in the power of creativity and the power of the imagination. Someone who dares to invent the future, envision, invent, and create the future. In 2005, Chinedu founded Hopstop, a pioneering travel app that helped millions of users navigate public transportation in major metropolitan areas around the world. Apple acquired Hopstop in 2013 and took much of that technology and incorporated it into Apple Maps. Chinedu also founded a company called Tripology a lead generation and referral business for the travel industry. And then that company was acquired by Rand McNally and later owned by USA Today. Most recently, Chinedu is the co-founder along with another inner MBA presenter, Ashoke Abalu. They're the co-founder of a company that's called Love and Magic. Probably couldn't think of a, of a more inspiring putting together of two words, at least in my world, 
company called Love and Magic, a startup studio that co-builds companies with innovative organizations. Forbes magazine named Chinedu one of the 10 most powerful business people from Africa. And he was named Black Enterprises Small Business Innovator of the Year and listed as one of their top 40 under 40. And again, I'm so happy that he's here with us as part of our inner MBA. Welcome, Chinedu. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And for the rest of you on this call, um, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you. To begin, Chinedu, I want people to get to know you a little bit. And I'm wondering if you can start and take us back, if you will, into your family lineage. Because in hearing a little bit about your grandfather, your father, I feel like you're carrying a certain type of mantle within your family. And I'd love to know how you see that. Yeah, thank you, Tammy. And uh, I'm glad you, you, you brought it up because it was, some, it was a thread that was uh, unfamiliar to me as well just a few, uh, few months ago, probably a year ago. Uh, so my grandfather, um, um, you know, I'm from Nigeria, as you mentioned. And so my grandfather, this was in the early days of the colonial, um, um, colonial uh, introduction of colonialism into um, Africa, um, especially Nigeria. Uh, so he was one of the two kids that the villagers pooled money together to send to the United Kingdom to go get an education. So. He goes on a ship, he goes to, the, uh, to London, he gets an education, he comes back to the village and was instrumental in, in building the first school um, in the village. And, but his son, uh, my father, then um, went to Cornell uh, to get his PhD and came back to um, Eastern Nigeria to start, uh, to start off the first university um, in, in the States. Uh, so I feel like I think I've carried on that um, this idea of searching for information through my um, through the through my teaching of um, entrepreneurship and um, how to create with uh, technology and and I never I never really thought of myself that way I just thought of myself as a business person but um, I begin to see that um, I can't I can't run too far away from uh, my, uh, my 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 roots so to speak. And share with us how, at age 16, you came over to the United States and then the path that you traveled to become an entrepreneur and start Hopstop. Sure. So, um, so I, was, uh, I was, yeah, I was 16 years old um, when my parents uh, uh, just informed me that we would be moving to the United States, um, primarily for us to actually have uh, an education um, from the United States, so it, it was definitely um, something that was uh, it was it was it was exciting, but it was also uh, new. Uh, so I went to Bloomington, Indiana first. Um, I couldn't speak. I mean, I couldn't. Obviously, I could speak English, but I was socially um, kind of removed from the way uh, Bloomington, Indiana worked. Uh, anyway, so I ended up going to Syracuse. And then going to, um, uh, to uh, working on Wall Street for a few years, and then I called my mother and I said, "Look, I really want to be an entrepreneur. 
um, I, you know, I'm going to leave JP Morgan and go become an entrepreneur. And like every other, uh, hopefully every sensible African mother, you know, that's just, that's just, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you live, leave a, a, um, a steady job to become an entrepreneur? And she said, entrepreneurs solve problems. So if you don't have a problem to solve, just uh, go to business school and, um, and until you find a problem to solve. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, um, after uh, JP Morgan, I left um, to go to Harvard and um, I started my first company right after, uh, right after graduation. So. Okay. And uh, share a little bit about what that that was not Hopstop. That was a different company. Yeah, that wasn't Hopstop. It was a company that was uh, we we're planning on really changing the way Africa traded uh, uh, financial assets. Uh, so we uh, we went out, we raised some money, but we uh, you know we really didn't know what we were doing, and we uh, we made so many mistakes. So I was literally had run out of money, uh, so I had to go back, uh, come back to the United States, and uh, I ended up working for a hedge fund for uh, for a while. But then I had that itch, again, that itch to create something, to birth something from my imagination. And so after I got my bonus, I, you know, I gave my, my notice, and uh, I found a developer um, in Russia. It's another long story of synchronicity, but um, him and I just uh, just through email and through uh, chats we built uh, Hopstop, and uh, so and obviously when uh, when Hopstop got bought by Apple he moved um, um, to uh, to uh, Cupertino but he was originally in Russia so uh, so Nigerian in New York meets a Russian. Um, who then comes to it comes to New York and then to California, but I think that's the nature of the the kind of life and the world we live in. Everyone is so so interconnected. And can you explain the problem you were trying to solve and that you successfully solved with Hopstop? Sure, I'm I'm horrible with directions. I mean, really bad. So like, so let me give you. So in Nigeria, I would get lost in our own house. And again, it's not that like it wasn't like we had this big mansion. It's just like. A, I always thought of myself as being spatially uh, challenged. So um, when I moved to New York, right, uh, the complexity of the subway system was just was too much for me. I was constantly getting lost. Then one day, um, I went on a date and I got I was so late. So the next morning, I said, "Look, I'm gonna have to fix this problem." So I went to the I went to the subway station, pull, pulled out the a map of the subway, brought it back to my apartment putting down on the flow and said, look, how can I, how can I solve this problem? And, and that's when I um, found the developer in Russia, Alex. Uh, so the problem I was trying to solve is how do you get from point A to point B? So back then there wasn't Google Transit, there weren't all these services. All we really had then was um, MapQuest. Uh, so that was really kind of, okay, so I know, I know it's possible with driving directions, why can't you do it for subway and bus directions? So, you know, so it started off with just doing the city, then then the rest of Manhattan, and the rest of uh, New York City. Then by the time Apple bought the company, we were in uh, 300 or so uh, cities all over the world. Mm -hmm. so. Now, Chinedu, you're passionate about entrepreneurship and in, in getting to know you and in listening to talks that you've given. You describe 
being an entrepreneur in the same way as someone might talk about being an artist. And you even say that you believe entrepreneurship is an art form. And yeah. I wonder if you can say more about that. I, I don't know if all people who start businesses think of themselves as artists engaging in an art form. Yeah, so, um, so, I, I, so I think fundamentally, I think uh, what we're here to do is uh, create. And it's not, it's not even optional, right? I feel like um, as, I, as I look at my behavior, as I look at what we do, we're, we, we create meaning out of uh, complexity. We, we see, um, so like a kid, if you put a, a, a couple of kids in a room with lots of Lego blocks, right? What happens, right? The first impulse is to, to create something out of that disordered set of uh, Lego sets. So I think um, even uh, some of us create uh, startups, uh, but we have some of us create uh, families, some of us create um, arts. But I think um, just in every sphere of human um, activity, you find this compulsion to create. Uh, so I feel like, so what the entrepreneur does, um, he creates or she creates in a way that creates something that uh, maybe that creates wealth or income for them. But at the end of the day, it's still an act of creation. Something uh, didn't exist in their mind. They imagined the possibility and they braved the uncertainty to achieve that goal. So in, a very, in many ways, it's very similar to the artist who faces a white canvas and then has to see in the emptiness of whiteness a possibility and then paint that possibility on the canvas. I think similarly for an entrepreneur who encounters a problem, nothing is there and they have to paint that reality through getting investors, getting product design, getting engineers to bring into reality something that was once maybe a thought or a possibility. So that's, that's how I see the, um, that link uh, in terms of what the link between artists and uh, entrepreneurs. And as an entrepreneurial artist, what do you do to enhance, increase, or invest, if you will, in your own creativity? Um, so I think uh, there's just three things um, I do, uh, but I think it all, um, obviously everyone has their own, um, everyone, everyone, I mean, I think the, the, maybe the technical way of describing this, you know, are states of flow. Uh, so the three sort of buckets of the way um, I unhinge from the, of the primacy of um, the moment and in terms of the, the stresses of your environment is, uh, you just exercise, so just running, just really just moving your your body around uh, is one. And for me, uh, just going into nature itself is something, there's something about being in nature that just, um, I, I feel like um, in the modern world, we have too many straight lines. And so when you go into nature, I think there's, um, there's something that happens that uh, you you seem to sort of connect to some flow of information, uh, which helps uh, imagination. And the third one is just really meditation and in, in, in whatever form, um, um, it could be silence, it could be listening to um, 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 a tape or uh, anything that sort of relaxes your mind. So those are the three things I do um, to be able to be receptive uh, to information. 
Now, here, here's a quote from you, Chinedu. You say, we're immersed in unlimited potential. We don't need to look for the next big idea, but to see what's in front of us. I, I think a lot of people think they do need to look for the next big idea. Why do you say we don't need to look for it? Um, because it's already there. Right. It's, um, so basically what you do, um, so is to realize that um, the, what's blocking people from seeing what's there is their focus on what they, is their focus, right? So by the way human beings work is that we, we pay attention to things. And because we pay attention to things, we can't see other things. And it's in the other things is where that new thing is. So if you're, you're looking and you're, you're focused on something, you've removed your, receptive, your receptiveness to new information, to new thoughts, uh, because it's not that um, you doubt that it's there, right? No one doubts that they, there is, there's, there's an idea that have, they haven't thought about. We know it's there. So the hardest thing is to remove the, the, the primacy of, the, of, of your of what you see in front of you and be open to that possibility that's already out there. You just have to perceive. So in a way, it's a certain kind of letting go of your focus uh, so you can be receptive to new information. And it's, it's on the edges of your perception is where you have this new, the aha moment, the reveal, right? It's not gonna, you won't get a breakthrough from looking at the thing you've been looking at for 12 months. <laughs> Uh, you're going to have a breakthrough by just maybe being in the shower or just having a conversation and, a, and having a thought. And that thought will lead to another thought. And then that challenge you've had, that um, uh, insurmountable mountain becomes, oh, here's how I can do it. So that's what I mean. Very good. Now, you talked about your, how you went and got a degree uh, from Harvard Business School. This notion of uh, being in business as an art form, was that ever anything that was pointed to in a traditional education? And I'm bringing this up because, you know, I resonate, Janeta, with this idea of being a, a type of artist in the business world and an artist who's of service. But I don't, I don't really hear that many people talk about it that way. So I'm, I'm curious, is this something you just came to on your own? Yeah, no, we did, they, did, they definitely didn't frame um, business as, uh, um, as art. Um, and I think the reason why, and I think that's normal, but I think the reason why is that um, we just haven't really understood what imagination is. Um, like we, um, so because if, if um, as business people, um, or oh, as, as educators, we, we pointed to the role imagination plays in business. I think we would, in fact, that would be, I would say the majority of our, our, our business education. So let, let me explain. So, um, uh, so, okay, let's put, so businesses um, solve problems profitably. Okay, so, um, so if you think of, so in my view, my own understanding of, of what business is, it's it's a it's you solve problems. But have you ever wondered how you solve problems? So you solve problems with the application of imagination. That is that is the actual mechanics of of the way human beings have solved our problems. 
but that point seems to be obscured with, um, with the way we teach uh, business is that the magic of the idea of FedEx, of Google, of Facebook is almost um, like we don't go into the details. We look at the structure, then discuss how we can grow sales, but the, the, um, how that thought became a thing isn't, isn't um, thoroughly discussed. And that's for me, that's really where I think the point of um, human leverage is to understand the role our imagination plays in how in business, in problem solving. I think if we understood that, then imagination would be something that we would talk about more um, uh, with more clarity because that's, I feel that's where I think um, human abundance um, uh, will come from. It won't be us moving around uh, rocks and stones and trees. Our ability to maintain or grow our abundance will come from our ability to tap into our imaginative, our creative capacities. And if there is any such thing as scarcity in this world now, it would be a scarcity of our imagination, the bottlenecks in the expression of our, of our creativity is what I see is the, is the challenge we have. And so, and it's wonderful, like so many of, many of the students see this, uh, hopefully can, uh, uh, just based on the conversations we've had can see can see that interconnectedness in many ways. And so, so, um, so when I see so many people in the school, it seems to that finally, in terms of the broader business context, we're beginning to see how our intentions connect to the mechanics of creation. So now we're trying to bridge purpose with, with, this, you know, with, with the mechanics of business. And I think that's a wonderful trend. Uh, and I think once we, truly see that then now imagination would have a way to be expressed much more than the way we, we have it now in business. What do you see as intentional ways people can carve out time to uh, focus on their imagination in business? How do we intentionally bake this into our organizations? Oh, um, sure. Okay. So, um, so, Okay, two things. Just uh, so one way is to is to want um, uh, put attention to your to existing beliefs. So that's uh, so I think that's really a way is um, is to write down or, 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 or think about what you you currently believe. That's the that's the that's the first part, and um, and the second part is then is to be open, so almost like a forgetting what you believe, forgetting the primacy of your current beliefs and being open to exploring what's, what's out there. Really, again, not, not trying to see, but unseen, so you can actually see the full range of potential. So that's the second step. And then um, the, the, another, the third step is once you, once you, once you have the inkling or, or intuition or perception of a new possibility, maybe a new business, a new a revenue stream, a new customer, uh, then um, you almost do the reverse, you pay attention. Uh, so those are just three practical ways uh, you could use your imagination to, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a very, in a business context. So another way is to think of it as empathy. So you think of it, so think of your, your ability to have empathy for another person is an act of imagination. 
And if you have enough empathy for another human being and you can actually go in between your state as an entrepreneur and really embody and feel what your customer is feeling, feeling their, feeling their angst, feeling their pain, feeling their desires, feel what they feel. If you can, uh, if you can have that imaginative uh, uh, capacity, then you're much better in a position to understand what product, what service, what revenue model, what business you can create for them. And our lack of ability to move from our consciousness has very real business results. So companies that, are, that explore the edges of, their, of, of um, what they know and what they don't know, those are companies that are creative, companies that are look within and, and focus on what is, um, have uh, too much of a rigid structure. So anyway, so I, I, think, I think I went a little too far with that, but um, that's how I think about it. No, it's good. It's very helpful. I, I wonder even just to keep going here for a moment, do you think there are question prompts that people could use to prime the kind of creative thinking that you're describing, whether they're questions that put them in the minds and hearts of their customers or just questions that get us out of checking our little boxes every day? Yeah. So, um, okay. So, Okay, so yeah, so basically um, what you're trying to do as a business person is essentially predict the future, right? So if you could predict what um, that customer, um, that lady who's walking down the streets truly wants, if you can predict what she wants, if you can predict that thing in her life she's, she's struggling with, right? You would have a successful business. You would have revenue growth. You would have a unicorn startup, whatever your goal is. So what we're always trying to do as entrepreneurs is to predict. And the toughest thing, to, I mean, we can, we can predict motions of, uh, of the moons around Saturn and, and all kinds of things. But the hardest thing to predict for, uh, for human beings are other human beings. So in a very real way, the, uh, a business challenge is the unpredictability of human beings. Will they buy that product if I, if, I, uh, if I launch it? Will they download my app? Will this message resonate with them? All business challenges are really about, in some ways about the hardest thing is predicting human beings. So if you, um, if you practice empathy, almost trying being someone else, it acts, it's actually the, the biggest factor in terms of your success. Because if you can predict what people want, have empathy for them, you've won. You've won. So in a very real way, but the way we frame business through markets and products, but at but the end of the day, those product, those market, those services and products represent this the satiation of human suffering, human pain. So uh, that's really what we're trying to predict. The product itself is just the way human beings soothe that, that desire or soothe that story. But the real thing is the person. So, um, so, uh, so in terms of the most practical inf uh, 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 insight I think I have around imagination is try quantum jumping into someone's shoes, right? And if you can do that well, you'll start seeing lots of things that you've ignored or you haven't thought about just because you haven't had the, uh, you haven't done, you haven't actually tried being somebody else. And once you can, once you 
practice being someone else, you now look at the world in a whole different way. You'll understand, oh, they don't really need this. This is what they really need, right? And so you'll be able to predict, you'll be able to launch products better because it'll be serving a very real uh, human pain, which is really the hardest thing about creating a new company. So 85% of startups fail, right? And they fail in the first few years because what the entrepreneur believes um, the customer wants isn't what they want. But that chasm is an informational chasm. And that informational chasm can only be crossed, right, with empathy enough to guess and then through the process of then checking. So, so basically a successful business can be viewed as you um, create an opportunity for you to apply your imagination. And that's the guess. What does this person, what does this person need? What does my beloved customer need? And then having the rigor to then check, do the, you know, to do the, do the mock-up, have the interview, uh, do the market research, right? All you're doing is starting with imagination and then checking, then imagining some more, then checking again. And any company that has this um, alchemy of imagination and structure, imagination and science um, wins. And then you can see it with Amazon, for example. So Amazon with all its, um, uh, at, at the heart of Amazon is an operating process. So they think like a, like a scientist there. It's almost like, it's almost like they've, take, they've taken the approach of science and then applied it to business, right? Creativity and science. So I feel like that's the, that's really the magic of entrepreneurship. If you can combine imagination and the structure of, of some process, um, I think that's where uh, you win. Now, Chinedo, you used this term, uh, beloved, what your beloved customer wants. And we had somebody write in, Aaron from Montana wrote in, what do you mean by using the word beloved to describe customers? Yes, okay, it was a great question, thank you. Um, so, okay, so this is exactly the point. So when you, when you call your customers your beloved customer, it feels different than your customer, right? Or your user or your segment or your persona. Uh, so that very feat, the, the most important feat of, of creativity of imagination, which is the ability to have empathy and embody someone puts yourself in someone else's shoe is really the point of the reason why uh, we, we describe the customers as your beloved customers. It's a way for you to to more, to more easily get into that mental state of empathy, right? So just so if, if your mother was your, was your, was uh, signed up for your service, how would you treat her? Uh, and you realize that um, if you treated her really well, you would have higher growth, you would have higher retention, you would have um, your, your conversion rates much higher. And so you, you get your business results if you have the empathy to think of your customers as your beloved customers. So in a, in a, in a very real way, it's a reframing of that relationship. But if, you, but if, that, if that is properly done, if companies can properly uh, reframe them, reframe how the employees and the, and the company thinks about who they serve, that's the ground, that's the spring in which other ideas can come up. Once you start thinking of your customers as your beloved customers, then you go through this empathy building process. Then all of a sudden, 
that product roadmap that's been filled with nice to haves go away and what comes off that process are uh, product extensions or things that are actual new revenue streams or new opportunities to serve your customers because you've had the the um, you've you've gone you had the attention on them and I think that's what's sometimes very missing in in many organizations. Now, Chinedu, I think of you as the startup guy, the startup expert, and you've already shared with us some of the thinking that goes in, in your view, into creating a successful startup. I'm wondering when you look back at your history and you see the startups you've been involved in, you personally, that have worked and those that didn't work, if you can share with us why something worked and what, what you learned about what hasn't worked in your entrepreneurial history? Great question, Tam. Um, thank you. Uh, so I think it's, uh, well, two things. One is um, the primacy of truth is one. And the second is, uh, is the empathy, that the, the question of really building a product for somebody else. I think those are the two distinctions. And, and in a way, they're the same thing. So, um, so as creators, uh, so I give the I give the example of the painter. So the difference, what's the difference between what we do, our creative expression as entre in entrepreneurship versus that of the of the still painter? So the still painter still sees um, possibilities or sees a white canvas, and they turn that white canvas into a thing of beauty, a thing of, of form, um, and they're done. But, um, as, but as entrepreneurs, what we're doing is we're bringing to life, um, not just uh, something that just is static, it has, to, it has to breathe, it has to have motion, it has to have, um, it has to have life in it. So we're, we're in the business of designing uh, for life. And the only way you can design for something for life is to understand what life wants to do. So basically, if you uh, times where I've thought of myself as the creator of a system, you know, I'm going to build this uh, this company that that will do X, Y, and Z, and it'll be a two-sided marketplace, and this will come and that will come. That's I'm looking at the structure of what I'm I'm looking at the still life of my of of the of what I'm building. But and every time I've done that, um, um, the thing I birthed from my imagination. Um, um, had was still it had no life in it, and uh, and times where for Hopsa, for example, where it was built from the frustrations of human beings, not from my desire to express um, the structure of it, but more as my desire to help life. Let me help another human being. The, that difference between it looking at it as structure as, uh, as opposed to thinking of it as a verb, someone trying to do something and helping them achieve that goal, in my mind, is a very big difference. And that mentality is so hard for entrepreneurs to, to uh, that difference between, uh, in, in product development terms, it's called product space versus solution space. So sometimes we're in the product phase, space, we're thinking about the, what we're going to build and this is, you know, it's, we're going to be a unicorn company in five years. And, but, um, but that thinking, 
um, removes the, the true energy of, of what you're trying to do. And if you went from that thinking to the level of the customer and say, look, what are they trying to do? What products will they need? Like, what, what's really their number one pain right now? What could I do to fix it? And that difference in thinking has been really the difference between every project that has worked out and, and ones that um, haven't. And okay. the other one quickly yeah. is just, I'll just quickly share is on, on truth is, um, is basically your relationship to truth. Um, so um, sometimes as entrepreneurs, we'll defend ideas, but deep inside, we, we, there's some dissonance around it, right? We, like we said it, when an investor asked us about our revenue model, we said something, but deep inside our gut, we had the sense that we weren't telling the truth or we didn't know what the truth was. And I think that uh, desire to, to always be truthful uh, to yourself is a critical part because just like a scientist, a scientist that doesn't respect truth will never find truth. And as an entrepreneur, what you're trying to do is to find the truth about your customer segment, about price points, about a revenue model, about your investor base. These are all truths, right? And your desire to find those truths, right? Are, I think it's critical to, um, to any type of success. Mm -hmm. Thank you for explaining that because that was actually what I wanted to ask you about this, the primacy of truth. That's a very powerful phrase. Would you be willing to share with me a time when you didn't fully inhabit the primacy of truth, like what was going on in what business you were in? Yes. So I'll talk about um, uh, tripology, for example. So um, it, it's, uh, it's a little, uh, there are also circumstances like the, the SARS, uh, which was, we were just going on when we launched it. But um, I was building a service, I was building a system, um, and it made sense that, um, that, the, um, that, the, that customers who are looking for travel would use a service. But um, did I truly believe that the service, given my, my, the experience that I had uh, working with these travel agents, did I believe that, that their value add would be sufficient to warrant the premium that people were paying for travel agents, right? That was that was a deep truth that I didn't want to I didn't want to confront because of um, I had I was already so into it. And I tried so many different ways to uh, to find my way out of that truth, but that truth at the end of the day um, created significant um, challenges for us. Really make that happen. And, and, and so what I realized sometimes as, as entrepreneur, I don't look at truth because I don't want to be surprised by what I find. And that, um, in a, that, um, that inability to, to face that question, that, that hard question of the truth, um, it's something that takes incredible courage sometimes as an entrepreneur. And given where I was in my own entrepreneurial journey, I didn't have that, that courage um, to, to go deeper into that question. You know, the question that you know deep inside that you need to ask. And if you can have the strength to ask it, so many things can come from that, uh, from that experience. You know, Chinedu, when I was thinking about asking you about the various companies that you've uh, attempted to launch and how some have been successful and some have been 
dot, 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 uh, failures. Wasn't quite sure. Do I use that word? <laughs> failures? Were they failures? And learning. I'm curious, They're learning. Yeah, yeah, that's my question to you. How do you see it? I think it's a journey, um, you know, and uh, each, I think of it as learning in many ways. So like the painter of paints and the first few versions are, um, uh, are not quite uh, good, but I think it's the pursuit of um, that craft, I think is whatever the, your gift is, sorry, um, whatever you see as why you're here in terms of your um your creation, that's um, any, in the journey towards that, I think that's, that's really the goal. And um, I, I've made mistakes and I've learned from that. And I'm sure I'll make more mistakes and I'll, I'll learn uh, so, uh, some more as well. Okay, in just a few minutes, we're gonna open it up and I'm gonna bring my co-host Soren on and our inner MBA participants, you'll have the chance to speak directly to Chinedu. And so you can go under the participant tab and hit the hand raise button if you're interested in asking a question here live to Chinedu. But first I get to throw a couple more at you. Okay, wonderful. You've said that love, love is the future of work. Yes. Praise God, tell me what Amen. you mean by that. Tell me what you mean by that. Love, okay. Um. There's so many ways we could go with it. Okay, so okay. Oh no, let me let me, let me make make it more practical. So, where does wealth come from? So all all we all we wake up in the morning, we go to work, we're on our Zoom chats, and we we're putting all these efforts into things. And what we're doing is we're organizing, we're building, and we're doing so sometime in spirits of harmony, and sometimes we're uh, we're doing it in an un unhealthy environment. But anyone who's worked in a healthy team, a productive team, or worked in a dysfunctional team knows the difference. So, so imagine a world, right, where just like Stalin's in murmuration, we take that idea of organization to the human level. So, so if you think of love, as a unity of action, as a oneness, right? Then in that oneness, many of the things we consider human challenges go away. So what's been missing is this kind of coordinating, coordinating story, right? Some, something that says, look, this is what we want as a, as a species, as a, as the human race, what do, we, so that idea, whatever that is, I'm calling that love, right? Whatever is our collective intention and letting that be, uh, so well, if we can, whatever that's, whatever that conception is, then that's where we get the most leverage, right? That's where the challenges we have now of global warming, of poverty, of all the things go away. The reason why those pockets of, of suffering exists is because there isn't coordination. And if the birds, if we can move like the birds move, if we can all bring in our superpowers when they're needed in a collective way, then uh, I see that as the, almost like it, that's where work is going, it's coordination. Um, we're coordinating ourselves and skills that 
human beings have never seen. But I think that will continue to happen. So I think of love as a future work, as thinking of it as the progression towards unity. So even in this, even with the uh, inner MBA, their connections, social and electronic co connections being built with, um, with uh, all of you as students, right? And that's that emergent sense of oneness is going to inform action and hopefully coordination. But that's the very act of what the future is. The future will be this um, system that is, that is coordinated at a scale human beings have never seen before. And if we are intentional about the design of those of our companies, we would align it to that greater, uh, that greater good. So that's what I mean by love is the future of work, this kind of coordinative um, uh, future. So somebody's listening right now and they want to be a powerful force for well-coordinated teams in their organization. They want to do that. What do you suggest? I mean, it's great to, you know, in my meditative state, I'm touching mystical experiences of love, but then I go into work and all kinds of challenges. I'm in the midst of all kinds of dysfunction, actually, to be honest, with teams. How, yeah. What are the core levers here to bring that vision into reality? Yes. So, okay. Okay. So, uh, okay. I'll, I'll try to keep this simple and so make it sort of very practical. So let's say you are, you work for um, a consumer goods company and you work in marketing, for example. So how could you take this way of looking at the world um, into your workplace? So, um, uh, so the idea of work as being of service, embodying service to another human being. So this idea of your beloved customer. So the first thing is to say, Whoever is the customer or the person who's using your product, have them in mind, right? So from, from reframing them as your beloved customer, there'll be marketing ideas that will come to you, right? That probably never came to you before. And once you see that powerful uh, use case or service or offering you could have for your customer, you then tell it to your to the, your your team members, etc. But the the point though is that you have to connect that service, that uh, willingness to help somebody else with a uh, with the organize your organization's goals. So that so once you have empathy for your beloved customer, uh, the challenge is then how do you connect that service to the to um, to the values or virtues or the metrics of your organization. So if your company is looking for revenue growth, like most companies are, here's how empathy for these customers will drive revenue. This is how paying attention to this customer will reduce their, their burn rate, uh, reduce their, their churn. This is how this new service could help this other person achieve this goal. Uh, so that's how I would frame it. It's, it's translating the, the insight if, uh, you have around your customer into something that um, aligns with the goals of your organization. If you can do that, then that's how you, you can connect those two worlds. Janedu, let's end on the note of magic. How do I bring more magic into my business life? Magic. How do you be? It's to dream, dream. Imagine that your job in this world um, is to is to believe that that vision, that 
imagination, that possibility that you see that nobody else in the world sees is to believe that that's true and give it fidelity. And you will find that every other system in the world is in cahoots with you to make it a reality. All right, thank you for bringing the love and magic. <laughs> Janedu Echero, so incredible to have you with us. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, thank you, Tammy. Thank you all of you and um, wish you the, the best of uh, success. All right, also you can unmute yourself and say goodbye now if you would like. So you can unmute yourself and just say- Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm being in with all of you guys. Good night, everyone. Magic. Good night. Magic. Thank you, magic. Yes. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to leave your comments on this interview here on the platform. And if there's a socially conscious CEO that you'd like us to interview as part of the Inner MBA, please let us know at innermba at soundstrue.com. <laughs>